Listen now to God's word from Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 through verse 12. This is the gospel of Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and move in our lives and in this service of worship. Come and help us to understand, to comprehend your word and apply it to our lives and then to live it out faithfully in this new year. And also, Lord, we we pray as we come for Holy Communion this morning that you would open our eyes, that we may see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to give you a quick update on our recent trip to North Carolina. Uh, We packed the car as full as we possibly could uh, a couple of days after Christmas and headed east and ended up in Tennessee shortly uh, for a visit with Connie's family and then to North Carolina where Connie is relocated and is living with our son and daughter-in-law. Uh, She is going to be the uh, nanny for the new baby who is doing well. He's going to be, I think, uh, three months tomorrow. And um, she will be making return visits to Georgetown periodically. In fact, we've already got her flying in a week from this coming Thursday for a long weekend. Her duties are Monday through Thursday. So she's not gone, okay? She'll be back. And you will be seeing her from time to time. But please pray for her and pray for me. Uh, It's... um, my main concern is like keeping the house clean, okay? Because I've discovered that when she's away for extended periods, this inner slob comes out. And uh, I've got plenty to eat. She, she really packed the freezers full of meals. I've already had two of them. They were delicious. So I'm not going to starve, but, uh, but do pray that I will not become uh, a slob 
while she is away. This morning's gospel lesson is traditionally read after Christmas on Epiphany Sunday. There's information in your bulletin about the meaning of Epiphany. It means a manifestation or revelation. It's kind of an aha moment when our eyes are open to see something more clearly. And this is the final scene of the Nativity, the visit of the Magi or the wise men. Um, after today, all of the remnants of our Christmas decorations and the sanctuary and the church will be uh, hauled off to the attic, packed away in boxes, the tree will be gone next Sunday, and the Nativity will be gone. But let's just give a word of thanks to all those that helped with this, Lisa Woodard and her team, Jennifer Borders and Judy Hambrick and her team that put up the tree. There's so many people that transform our church over Advent and Christmas and make it a beautiful place to gather and to worship. So just would you give them a round of applause to show your appreciation. Anybody who decorates for Christmas knows it's a lot of work, right? Just imagine decorating the church. It is a whole lot of work. But like Advent, uh, our cultural expectations regarding Christmas have, have twisted a holy day into a holiday of overindulgence and self-gratification. Uh, we have lost, I think, largely the spiritual significance of Advent. We've been beating that drum now for several years, but especially over the last few weeks... Uh, this is supposed to be, those weeks leading up to Christmas, a time for reflection and repentance. And by celebrating Christmas prematurely, starting with, what, the week after Halloween now? Uh, we have lost the spiritual meaning of the actual celebration of Jesus. And the 12 days of Christmas... From, from many centuries ago that were celebrated and remembered by the church as a time of great joy. And most of us now, we, we think of the nativity in this way. Okay, we come to candlelight service on Christmas Eve. Jesus is born. The shepherds come. The wise men follow closely behind them. And then it's done. It's all over. And I know people that started taking down the tree on December 26th a few eager beavers on Christmas night. Uh, they put up the nativity. They say, I'm done with Christmas. Except for the lights. We leave the lights on the outside of the house until March, don't we? <laughs> At least that's what I used to do. But that's not the way the Gospels tell it. Uh, in reality, by the time the wise man, also called the Magi, arrive in Bethlehem, as Scott told the children this morning, Jesus was probably close to a year to two years old. Uh, Matthew 2 verse 11 says that the Holy Family was living not in a stable, but in a house. And verse 16 says that King Herod orders the murder of every baby boy two years and old and, and under in the city of Bethlehem because of his own paranoia that somehow a new Jewish king had been born that would come and take the power away from his family. Jesus would have been a victim of this murderous rage, except that God warned the wise men to return home by another way. And he also tells Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt. The holy family becomes refugees in a foreign land. Now, when we visited Egypt four years ago, I was absolutely amazed at how many religious sites there are 
in Cairo that commemorate places that tradition says the Holy Family either visited or lived in during their time as refugees in Egypt. Coptic Christians are very proud of this fact that Jesus lived there as a little boy. King Herod died probably a year or two after the birth of Jesus and it was only then that Joseph was told it was safe for him, him to come home, back to the homeland. And they returned to Nazareth where he raised God's son. The visit of the wise men to Bethlehem to many people sounds fanciful. It's, it's, it's a good story, but it cannot possibly be true. But let me just tell you that ancient sources from that time and before have, have clearly ascribed great influence to the Magi, to these wise men that lived in, in an area that is now Iran and Iraq. Isn't that interesting, given the news, that, that from that region of the world, these Magi, these wise men came? Uh, we don't know if there were three. Uh, the tradition has risen up because of the three gifts that there were three and there are names given to them, but that came much, much later. Uh, contrary to the Blue Camel episode earlier in the service, okay, they did not necessarily ride on camels, Scott. Sorry to disappoint you. That's not in the scripture. It's likely, you know, I can promise you they were not blue, okay, um, and, and um, they were not wearing crowns, most certainly, because they were not kings, they were kingmakers. They were part of a priestly class of individuals that lived in the ancient world who, who were schooled in, in many of the ancient sciences, in astronomy, in astrology, in the interpretation of dreams. Uh, they were relied upon by people in power to give them direction and counsel and care about the future. What is amazing is that they were Gentiles. They were not Jews. Now Scott was right to tell the kids that scholars believe because of the Jewish exile in that part of the world during the Babylonian ca captivity that they began to receive and to study and know about Jewish scriptures. So they probably had some knowledge about Judaism and certainly about the coming Messiah, the Christ, this King of the Jews. But, but they were not Jewish. Daniel 2.48 tells us that during the exile, Daniel, who was a very devout young man, uh, lived a very disciplined life, that Daniel rose to power as chief of the Magi. And this occurred 500 years, 500 years before the birth of the Christ. Matthew's gospel tell us that they followed this star, this celestial uh, phenomenon. They followed it all the way to Jerusalem. And this was not three solitary camels as the pictures and the postcards and the Christmas cards always depict it. Uh, it was a large caravan. It created a lot of buzz in the city and they were seeking out the top dog. They went to King Herod who called himself Herod the Great. Now that tells you a lot about his own ego, but he was a great leader and he accomplished month, much during his reign and rule over four decades, even though he was an oppressive 
and, and a ruthless king over the Jews. He was actually Idumean, uh, and so he was not purely Jewish. And yet he considered himself, because of his appointment by the Romans, as the king of the Jewish people. He was a deeply disturbed man, mentally ill, no doubt, was responsible for the deaths of his own family members. Uh, he, was, uh, he was really unstable. And so it's not surprising that he became disturbed by this, this inquiry by the wise men. Now, when the wise men arrived, they responded in four ways that are so relevant to us today to the epiphany they experienced when they encountered the Christ child. When they had this eye-opening aha moment in the presence of a child who was the Son of God, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, and also the promised Messiah of Israel. And the first thing that they did is that they bowed down to him. Now, this, this is an instant rec recognition, I think, that whatever the child may be, and they can't, they can't know fully who he is. They did know that he was not ordinary. It's a stunning thing to imagine what is depicted in that slide on the screen. Grown men, wise men, men of education, of position, power and influence, kneeling down, prostrate with their faces on the floor before this small boy who was one to two years of age. They sensed, I believe, in their hearts, no doubt because of the Holy Spirit's moving in them in this moment, that this child, this toddler, was someone very, very special. They were in the presence of royalty. You know, I've discovered in my own life, I'm still discovering it, that there is something deeply humbling about kneeling in the presence of Jesus about getting down on your hands and knees, even placing your face on the floor and, and worshiping Him, bowing down before Him. I had a couple of first-time guests several years ago that came to this church. It was on a communion Sunday, never been here before. And they, they informed me as, as I encouraged them to come back as they went through the door that they would not be returning here because we required people to come forward to receive communion and kneel at the railing. Now, first of all, we don't require people to do anything. Uh, you're invited to come, but their custom was, in their church background, was to sit privately in the pew and receive the, the bread and the tray of cups as they were passed down to them. Uh, and they did not like this, this coming forward. In this having to kneel. There is something deeply humbling. It's a leveler, if you will, in inviting people to come and to kneel at the railing for Holy Communion. Whether it's at the bedside in our own homes when we pray to God at the beginning or the end of a day, or whether it's in response to an invitation to salvation or to prayer or, or some other need in our lives, uh, kneeling is an act of surrender. And it requires that we humble ourselves in the presence of Jesus. 
When I visited Missy Jolliffe, who is nearing the end of her seven-year battle with breast cancer, when I, when I visited her yesterday, I asked her after a long conversation for about an hour if she would like for me to pray with her. And she said yes. And I got down on my knees in the, in the transitional care unit at UK and through the, the bed railing, I took her hand and I prayed with her. And I do this often. I do this often um, because I'm aware that even with all the medical doctors and technicians and highfalutin medicines they can give us now that, that can extend life and even cure cancer at times, that we are first and foremost relying on the great physician. We are surrendering and yielding our life to Jesus because he is the one who has the power to heal and restore those who are sick. The second thing they did was that they worshipped him. And it's impossible, again, to know how much they understood about Jesus at this moment. But I will say that worship is always the right response, e either individually or corporately together as members of the body of Christ, for us to worship him. When we realize we are in the presence of him. This requires, I think, a setting aside of, of our preferences and, and our desires when it comes to worship. Frankly, uh, I, I am so bothered when I look out at any congregation. This has been my experience in nearly 40 years of ministry. At people who sit in the pews, they never open their mouth. They don't respond with the readings. They don't ever sing a single song. And sometimes they'll say to me, well, I just, I don't know the words to those songs. Or I don't like a praise band or a guitar. I prefer the organ. Or sometimes people say, I just don't like the organ. It's too formal. Or we say, you know, I just don't have a good singing voice. Well, I don't either. But I sing. And sometimes into a hot microphone when they forget to turn me off. Uh, <laughs> But I sing because my heart rejoices in the Lord's presence. The scripture says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And some of us can do that, right? Others can sing beautifully and they're in the choir. But the rest of us, we make noise. And, um, and that's okay. Uh, if, you, if you try it, you might like it. And you may actually start learning the words to some of these new songs. Just do it. Paul wrote to the Philippians that one day at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. It's better to do that now than to wait until later when the motivation for worship won't be the choice to worship but you'll be compelled to worship. Because when He returns, when this day is fully come, no one will be on their feet. Everyone will be on their knees, worshiping Him. Third, they gave Him gifts. The irreverent Babylonian bee, which, you know, I'm not necessarily recommending you read everything that they post, because sometimes it, it crosses the line, but, but it's a Christian humor uh, website, and I've read some hilarious things from them. It's satire. It's akin to The Onion. Some of you all that have read that uh, satirical website online. But, but the day after Christmas, they posted this piece. thought it was so funny. 
biblical scholars from the nation's top divinity schools now believe Jesus ignored the gold, frankincense, and myrrh brought by the Magi and simply played with the boxes that the gifts came in. <laughs> the toddler Jesus reportedly tossed aside the valuable gifts and started playing with the containers. I talked to my grandson Lincoln, who's seven yesterday, Man, he had the mother load of gifts for Christmas. He's got two sets of grandparents. He's got generous parents, but the grandparents, we know how to do it. And I mean, it was unbelievable all the stuff he got. And when I talked to him yesterday, you know what he was doing? He was making things with cardboard and tape. He was creating things out of simple stuff, out of boxes. A little boy forgot his lines uh, as one of the magi in the Christmas pageant at his church, and he blurted out, We are the three wise men. We bring him gifts of gold, common sense, and fur. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the meaning of these exquisite gifts is fairly obvious. They were all fit for a king, as Scott said this morning. And they illustrate the giving back to Jesus in response of God's gift of Jesus to the world. You know, I, I've, I've said this over and over again throughout my life, and, and it affects the way that I try to live my life and how I do my ministry and how I'll live the rest of my life, even after retirement. But the fact is, Jesus owns me. He owns me. He owns me. He has owned me for 50 years. So whatever I own, whatever I am, whatever I aspire to do with the rest of my life, that all belongs to Him. It all belongs to Jesus. Glory to God. Now the fourth thing they did is that they returned home by another way. I didn't know it until this last week, but James Taylor wrote a ballad about this back in 1988. And that's where I get the title to my sermon this morning. And, and he sings about the wise men who went home by another way. And he talks about the decisions that they made after encountering Jesus. It's a lot better song than We Three Kings, I'm telling you. <laughs> it's a lot better. Um, my own brother turned 60 in April. And he sent me a text yesterday and he said, I got a new job. Uh, he said, I want to talk to you, Greg. Would you, would you call me when you get a chance? And so I did call him later in the day, and he was somewhere in Georgia driving down uh, I-75 on his way to Florida to be with his wife that he married last May. And um, he told me this wonderful story, how God had provided a new job. He'd been flying back and forth every weekend for a year between Tennessee and Florida. And um, when, I, when I hung up the phone, I was just so grateful. That, that my brother David, who, who followed some stray paths, let me tell you, during his life, over the last few years, has been seeking Jesus. And his life has been transformed by this rediscovery of faith that, that he once had when he was a kid. How wise he has become, I thought. And it's because, I believe, that he has returned home by another way as he makes his way to a new home with his new wife. God is a God of grace, isn't he? 
Isn't it wonderful that you can return home by another way? That where you are today is not where you have to stay. <laughs> there is another way. And I think that, that we forget that the first followers of Jesus in the book of Acts were not called Christians to begin with. They were called followers of the way. Some thought they were a sect of Judaism. Others in the Roman Empire later thought they were a cult, a flesh-eating, blood-drinking cult. Uh, no one fully understood them for quite some time. But one thing they did see and understood is that because they followed Jesus, their lives were different, very, very different. And your life can be different too. I challenge you in this new year to pray more, to learn more, to study more, to read your Bible more, to be engaged in the, in the community of faith here at Georgetown First more, uh, to serve more, and certainly to give more. These wise men went home by another way because they were different. They weren't the same men who left Persia nine months, months before. They were much wiser now. They were enlightened. They had an epiphany as the first Gentiles to see the Savior of the world face to face. Jesus was not the king they expected. He was humble. He was a child. And the vulnerability of his parents and, and just the, the commonness of it all was evidently very revealing of who God was and, and that he was doing something different and new in the world. Going home by another way doesn't have anything to do with geography, but it does have a lot to do with the heart. It's about making a home for Jesus in your life. It's about welcoming him daily into the routines of your life. It's, it's about acknowledging that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And if you yield yourself, if you surrender yourself to him, he will make your life new if you invite him to be your Lord and your King. As we prepare to take Holy Communion together, I just want to lead you in a short prayer. And I am calling you to decision today. I'm calling you to emulate the example of these magi, these wise men, as Scott did with the kids, uh, to do these four things. To be a person who seeks Him daily in 2020. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Humble baby born in Bethlehem, King of kings and Lord of lords, come into my heart today and lead me home. Lead me home, Jesus, by another way. Amen.